Hello and welcome to Diverse and Inclusive Leaders, the show where I speak with the most inspirational and thought-provoking leaders of today and unearth their unique stories of diversity and inclusion to help inspire, educate and motivate others to make the world a better place. Today, I am delighted to be joined by the epic Lorraine Martins, MBE. FRSA. Now, Lorraine is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Network Rail, which maintains and develops Britain's rail infrastructure. Infrastructure, I'm sure that you have all heard of it, it has over 42,000 employees and is actually the fastest growing railway in Europe. Lorraine leads a centre of expertise, which supports the Network Rail's ambition to become more open, diverse and inclusive. Lorraine has had a fantastic career. She wears multiple different hats. She's led multi-award winning teams in her past, delivers a program of equality and inclusion in employment and skills within infrastructure, venues, facilities, and also for the Olympic Park in London 2012, which is a phenomenal achievement. For this work, Lorraine was actually awarded an MBE. Lorraine is also Vice Chair of the Trust for London, a grant-making body which tackles inequality and poverty in the capital, and chaired the working group that funded the London Living Wage Campaign. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and in 2019, she was announced as the Financial Times Inclusive Top 100 Women Influencing Engineering in the UK. Welcome to the show, Lorraine. Thank you, Leila. Thanks for that introduction. Oh my goodness, I could have gone on for quite a lot longer, <laughs> but uh, there's so much great stuff in there. I wanted to make sure I included as much as I possibly could. Um, but just to kickstart things, before we get into the nuts and bolts of today's conversation, which is all around the importance of race and equality and some of the great work that you've been doing at Network Rail, I wonder whether you could talk to our listeners a little bit more about how you came to be where you are today and also how you came to wear these, um, these multiple different hats that you wear, uh, which all seem to be around the theme of diversity, inclusion and belonging, which of course we love here at the Diverse Inclusive Leaders podcast. Thank you, uh, Leila. So, so I, I guess it, it starts from, from how I was raised and one of the key facets of my parents bringing me up was about um, giving back to the community and, and making things fair. And, and I guess as a, as a, a young black girl, born in London, uh, uh, my parents of the Windrush generation, they were really clear that I was going to be working in a hostile environment, to use the terminology, um, and, and that, you know, it was really important to, to, to give back to the community. So that's been a, a thread of, of my career through, throughout. Um, so I went to Warwick, I was one of the first in my family to, to go to university. I studied comparative American studies. Um, which is an interdisciplinary degree looking at the economics, politics, sociology, history of the Americas. So that's North America, South America, the Caribbean, uh, the diaspora. So all the different communities that have come in and formed the Americas. And again, I did that really because I was really interested in, in black history. And that was something that we didn't ever study at, at school. Or there wasn't a topic that was called black history. And when I graduated, I volunteered in an adult literacy project, teaching adults uh, numeracy and literacy. Most people have some functional literacy. And so I, I got to understand how you 
manage to survive that and also give people tools and tips and, and skills to to improve their literacy and then I was trained to be a trainer so that was a kind of thing of, of building the skills of others and seeing the potential in others and I uh, took over the project at a very young age so I was managing people who were my parents age so that developed some of my leadership skills so you can imagine that wasn't that wasn't necessarily an easy thing to do <laughs> I also was writing funding applications, so I was very steeped in, in the voluntary sector and, and really trying to make things better for pe people less fortunate than me. Then I, was, uh, I went into an organisation in the East End of London um, and worked for uh, what I called as the sexiest job that I've ever had, which was being a paid activist. So it was an organization that was uh, campaigning against racist harassment and police harassment of black Asian and minority ethnic people. And it was in the borough in, in London, which was the first borough to evict perpetrators of racist harassment. So very, uh, and why I call it sexy is because it did, just didn't feel like work. We were up all hours um, working. Uh, I was a caseworker, so we were trying to support people who were experiencing harassment. Um, and I also honed some of my skills about about working with different organisations. So the voluntary sector tends to be very, I'm going to say incestuous, but I mean that in the best possible way. So you tend to share skills across different organisations. So I was a secretary for one organisation, worked with a sister organisation, which is which Women's Refuge, worked with another organisation where I was the, the chair. And, and so building up my, my kind of leadership skills and understanding of how things work. From then I um, turned from poacher to gamekeeper and went and worked for a local authority developing uh, community care services. Um, so then I could see things from the other side. So having campaigned and, and been an activist, I'm now on the other side of people lobbying me and campaigning uh, for me to do more things with, within a large institution. So I set up services around uh, adult care, which were uh, storytelling, mental health, day centre, daycare provision, a whole raft of different things at the, at the introduction of, of community care. I then went on to uh, lead a, a, a nationwide voluntary organisation. Then after that, I became a management consultant, um, did a whole raft of things around um, leadership development, interim leadership. Uh, and I, as an interim leader, I led a mental health organisation. And whilst I was doing that, and your question was, how, how comes I've got all of these hats? You can see I've got lots of things that really interest me. I was also on the funding body of a, uh, <clears throat> the lottery when it was introduced. So one of the regional bodies I was on that. So again, on looking at the voluntary sector and providing funding and looking at, at bids and proposals and making recommendations about how that money was spent. From that uh, and being a sole trader, I then went and worked with an organization as a, as a kind of con consultant in a, in a wider team. And we did some really interesting work. We call it social results. So whole systems events, looking what would happen in a major crisis, how different different bits of the system would work, uh, doing training with uh, uh, black leaders, whole raft of things. And then I went to an organisation called the Audit Commission, where I was the head of diversity and inclusion. That was the first time they had the role and they, they were looking at the use of public funds in terms of housing, local government, health authorities, fire and rescue services, and how those public funds were meeting the needs of their vulnerable communities. 
then I was headhunted to go and work on the Olympic Park with the, uh, what's it called? The Olympic Delivery Authority. Um, so, yeah, and, and that was in, uh, in uh, the five boroughs in, in East London of London, and I live in one of them, Hackney. So that was a really fantastic experience to see the regeneration of, of a massive area, uh, the size of, of, of Hyde Park at the time. And uh, then I worked for myself a little bit, did some more work with uh, di different organisations, BP, Arup, which is a, a global engineering company. And then I joined Network Rail. So I guess that's a whistle-stop tour through, through my career. I think the strands of kind of doing leadership roles and volunteering and working with organisations that fund different activities, you know, so that I can kind of, yeah, create more equality and, and tackle major issues. There's always been a theme throughout my career, paid and unpaid. Wow. Well, that is a fascinating whistle-stop career, as you call it. I love how you casually forget the name that you were awarded an MBE for. That is just brilliant. I think that's very, very telling. <laughs> very, very telling in, indeed. Um, and I know we're going to be going on to kind of talk a lot more about race and ethnicity. And what's really interesting, I must point out to start with, is that you know, I guess when you talk about your your kind of your 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 personal upbringing, which I think is really interesting, having come your parents having come from that wind rush generation, that the ethos that they have imparted upon you seems to have had a real prolific effect on the aspects of the career that you have had. You know, perhaps it is serendipity to a certain extent, but actually, it seems very much that that real ethos and personal grounding given to you by your parents has really been um, imparted upon the various different organizations and projects that you've got involved with and you know it was interesting when you talked about the work that you did at Warwick um, as I mentioned to you before I'm very interested in anything American having an American husband but having been brought up in the UK like yourself I recall at school learning a little about black history but it was never given that title of of black history. We learned some of the harrowing tales of um, the slave trade and things like that, but we didn't go into a huge amount of depth. And I think given the, you know, really quite traumatic year that we have had with everything from, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so, so many more, um, you know, I'm sure that this has had a huge impact on you personally, but also perhaps the opportunity to share more about the importance of black history from not only your studies, but also from that lived experience that you have and your parents had as well coming here. And I wonder whether you could just, you know, share a little with our, our listeners about this, um, because there's many things even that I don't know, and I think many people don't know. And it, it's great to really hear firsthand some of those real pivotal points from your perspective and how things hopefully are changing for the better, in particular because of the lived experience. And many people I speak to, you know, don't necessarily have that lived experience and, you know, nor do I, I don't think anyone can until you have lived it, breathed it, slept it. And so it's always great to learn firsthand. Thank you, Lena. So, I mean, you know, in terms of the lived experience, for me, um, Growing up in 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 northwest London in in an area which is is very very salubrious and very posh now, which is uh, it's Primrose Hill. Um, at the time, it was a real working class area in, in the northwest of London. 
and it had um, a range of, 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 of diverse communities. So I remember growing up with um, uh, Greek and uh, Cypriot children, and there was a big issue around Greek Cypriots and, and the separation between uh, Cyprus and Greece. Children from India, children from Pakistan, Asian children from uh, Uganda and Kenya, and so a whole, as well as you know, African Caribbean kids, Irish kids, a whole panoply of, of, of different ethnicities and, and experience I, I kind of grew up with, and that was normal. But I also remember um, one of my first experiences of, of racism was not being allowed to go into my white friend's house because their parents didn't allow us in because we were black. And we took this as just normal. But when you reflect on it, and, and obviously it stayed with me as a, 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 you know, a young black kid, I couldn't go into my friend's house. They'd say, wait outside because you can't, you're not allowed to, you know what kids are like, they just tell the truth. You can't come in because my parents say you can't come in because you're black. So we just said, okay. And so, so those are the kind of lived experiences that I would imagine a number of people had that we, and, and I'm using inverted commas, we kind of normalized and just took as the way that things were. And um, that has informed, you know, my, my attitudes and my belief in, in equality, um, my belief that people should be treated fairly and has just been a, you know, a seam. And, and I remember at, at school, we had a campaign to uh, knock down a wall that separated boys and girls. So when I grew up, boys and girls weren't allowed to play together. So you just think these are the things that we kind of grew up, which were, uh, systemic and we we didn't really have a, I think a, a, a narrative or a, 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 a language to 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 really talk about it but we just took it as the natural order although we did you know there's obviously been resistance if you you look through time it's not that we were passive in 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 those experiences but we kind of accepted them as that actually this is the way things are and I guess um, I think my parents gave us resilience to withstand those things and to, to not let those instances define who we were um, and, and what we could do. So it wasn't that they would limit us, but that we would know how to, to, to manage and, and, and cope. And I guess that's been important. So, you know, I, I was an activist at university because that was the right thing to do. And when we talk about black history, it doesn't, if in, in the UK context, it doesn't only start with Windrush. If we look back to Roman times, there were, uh, you know, Africans coming over to this country it, it, as far back as, as Roman times. If you think about the history in, in America, people who came from the diaspora, they came from major civilizations, civilizations which predated slavery. And those things need to be learnt and understood and given due respect and due regard rather than the kind of system where we have one set of histories is seemingly better than, than another. It's, it's about having, you know, broadening our, our awareness of the breadth and depth of experiences and, and history that people bring um, to, to the phrase. So, so for me, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of seamless continuum. It's something that is important to me. Uh, it's, it's informed, you know, I'm a very values driven individual. And so the things that I do and uh, the things, the people and organisations that I work with are places that also mirror my values to some extent. And I, I think I've been fortunate enough to, to pursue that, that, that kind of line of career. Does that answer some of your, your question? 
it, it absolutely does. And I completely and utterly concur with the fact that this is systemic. Um, this is systemic. And it's, I mean, it's interesting when you highlight these pieces that seem to be normal, or that's just the way it was in your childhood. I can certainly relate to that personally being, um, I, I was adopted by white British parents, my, my brother and I, I were, and so we were the first Chinese or the only Chinese children in our in our school and so you know you look back at these these times or things that people have said and you just take it on the chin to a certain extent but um is it really on the chin when you then recall those very vivid images of exactly what happened um but one thing that i'd love to ask you about if you don't mind is where you talked about your parents and the resilience that they imparted upon you and i think much is often the case with um, parents who come from different backgrounds and their children's and they hope that in every generation that this will diminish somewhat now to me you know you've we've had many conversations and you always seem incredibly confident to me full of life full of energy you know I feel quite empowered when I speak to you and when I've had the opportunity to speak with you in the past this confidence whilst part of it's clearly come from your parents where did that come from and for a you know certainly when you're a young black female making your way in the world you've had these experiences but you've bounced straight back was that confidence that came naturally over time or is it something that you really kind of had to learn and work hard with because I'm sure there must have been in the business context many a time where you may have been the only black woman or the only one from a certain background, even invisibly diverse backgrounds, to be in a certain situation. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's such a, that's such a, a multi-layered question. It's great. Um, so where does my confidence come from? I think it comes, it does come from my, my upbringing and it does come from, from being able. I, I am able and, you know, I was always a, 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 a good student, not goody, but good, <laughs> capable. <laughs> easily distracted, um, bright and sharp, all of those kind of attributes are things that I think my parents clearly saw in me and, and to some extent my, my teachers saw. And my, I remember one of the things that was really, because I, you know, multi-skilled multi person, my mum my went to school one day, my, my school, I used to represent my school in all manner of sporting activities and my mum clearly said to my teachers, my daughter's not going to represent the school if she's not in the top stream of of, of, of your academic um, <laughs> endeavors and I was kind of like oh no <laughs> I want to run and jump and and I was like no all the black kids can do that you're you you, you are this is your path and so you know it, it helped me to kind of buckle down but it was a really clear marker to to my teachers that this this person is talented and you're not going to siphon them off into, into sport where, you know, a lot, lots of us are overrepresented. She is going to be academic. She is, she has the skill she has. So, you know, that whatever's within me in a sense, my, my parents were really clear that I, I was capable. And so that from that get you gain, I imagine confidence. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes absolute sense. And I love how much you are a glass half full person. Uh, you know, I very much like to, to think of myself in, in the same manner because they often, and I don't know whether you have this, but when I'm talking to individuals about kind of diversity, inclusion, and belonging, sometimes there's that kind of, oh, you know, there's, the, the, there's almost like the perception of certain diverse communities being the victim. Now, yes, I know that there is 
a huge amount of systemic issues. But for me, I always love to flip that on its head. And it seems that you do as well, because like, actually, this is such a big benefit. The difference is a benefit, it is a superpower, and it's something that needs to be harnessed to its best potential, not that kind of, you know, I think we need to not look at diversity as, oh, it's the victim situation, you know, it is the, um, you know, it's that benefit of difference. Absolutely, and I think I, I kind of describe it as, 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 you know, we focus on the deficit, so what's the problem with diversity inclusion, which is the inequalities, it is the exclusion, it is, it is the discrimination. The, the, the kind of benefits are about tapping into talent. And oftentimes by being discriminatory, by being exclusive, we miss out on that talent. And so for me, there, there is a, you know, there's an absolute time to address the, the inequalities, the inequities, the, the, the kind of inappropriateness and, and downright, you know, in you know, bad behaviors. At the same time, there's a there's a there's a call to arms really about saying, well, why would you exclude talent from your business? Mm -hmm. Doesn't make any business acumen sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of hold those two things? Yeah, absolutely. It is, as you describe it, it's that, it's that leveling of the playing field. Because if we do take that kind of poor victim slant, it's almost, you almost force those behaviors if I reflect back into childhood when I don't know for example if I've said to people I'm adopted I've never thought of it as a bad thing I'm actually proud of my family and proud of my parents and people would say oh I'm so sorry to hear that and it kind of you know almost predictates if that's the right word the behaviors that you then go off into life with if that makes mm. sense. But no, you're absolutely right. It is a business case. It's a strategic priority. That is absolutely crucial. And I think this is a perfect segue into talking about some of the, the superb things you've been doing at Network, Net, huh, Network Rail around the race and ethnicity agenda, because it is so crucial that when we talk about Black Lives Matter and we talk about the wider race and, and ethnicity agenda, that we continue to keep the momentum and foot on the gas. I've been talking about this for such a long time and um, you know in some worlds you know the, the George Floyd um, tragedy has happened and suddenly it's a wake-up call yes that's great we've got to keep that foot on the gas and I think listening to some of the great work that you have been doing way before George Floyd now keeping pushing it through into the future I wonder whether you can talk to us about some of that because I know that you've really been making waves in um, you know in the agenda uh, at present. Thank you. So, um, as we said, we've been working on, on race for some time. And, and indeed, we're in the second year of our five-year strategy, which is, was called Everyone Matters. And we have a programme of work called Race Matters, which is all about increasing the representation of Black, Asian and minority ethnic um, employees in our organisation so that we, at the very least, reflect the society and, and com communities that we serve. And we also want that to be the same of our, of our leadership. So the first thing that we did was publish our ethnicity pay gap. As you will know, in this country, you don't have to, to do that. So we're really pleased that we've done that. And it, it's shown some interesting disparities. And we're about to publish our second one, uh, I think, at the end of this year. So that that augurs well, because the, the pay gap is, is reducing. We've also done a five-year a, a review, we called it a data review, of the experience of Black, Asian and minority ethnic employees through the lens of recruitment. 
And we looked at the last five years and that was quite a, a salutary lead. So it was really uh, challenging for the business to see it because it, we're presenting, you know, we're a data-driven organization. We presented the data to the, to the business and said, these are the experiences. And, and, and in terms of headlines, Black, Asian and minority ethnic people less likely to be appointed, less likely to get promotion, more likely to get a good performance rating, so not the, the higher end of the performance ratings, more likely to be disciplined, more likely to be dismissed, really keen to, 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 to get promotion, so lots of activity in the recruitment, but, but very little success. So we played that back, that hard data, and we had one story which kind of was a really important lesson, I think, for the organisation. One individual had made over 20 applications, internal applications within the business for promotion. And then they made four applications to external organizations for promotion. And they got four external offers and not one internal offer in our business. So that was a, a really hard lesson because we were losing talent. They got promotion and of course they left. They left and they hadn't wanted to, you know, if you apply for 20, 20 different promotions in an organization, you want to stay, you, you know, you kind of are invested in the organization. So our activity, our lack of transparency, forethought, or you know, our institutional racism meant that we lost talent. So I use that as a really pivotal kind of um, example for us as a business of how we lose out. You know, somebody else comes, we've invested in this person, we developed them, they don't get the promotion, they then go outside to another organisation. That makes no sense whatsoever. So, so looking at the data, sharing that data across the organisation, we then ran a raft of, of focus groups um, with Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic groups. So one level, we've got the kind of quantitative analysis, this is all the data. And the second level now, we've picked up the qualitative, the, the kind of comments from, from what Black, Asian and minority ethnic people are saying about the organisation. And they've reinforced some of those challenges um, that I've articulated, which were, were, were demonstrated in, in, in the statistics. And the key one for, for our colleagues was around the secondment opportunities and us feeling like a bit of an opaque organisation in terms of how you make progress and it feeling like you have to have really good relationships in order to succeed in the organization. So all really challenging stuff around, you know, racism and lack of uh, role models. So I'm the most senior black woman in, in, in an organization of 42,000 employees. Um, and, and the fact that I can count them, you know, tells a story. And all a network rail is a, inverted commas, a good organization. We have good people working there. But what that the focus groups were telling us was that, you know, as good as we are, we like to circumnavigate processes. We like to do what we want to do and get to the end result that we want to do. And therefore, we're not necessarily following the processes that we ought to follow and we're not as transparent as we want to as we say we want to be and that has been a real eye-opener for the organization then you ally that to the George Floyd the, the murder of George Floyd then it's just been a, 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 a an opportune moment for us as an organization to really lean into how we can better how we can improve our approach so what we've done now is our executive teams have all got um, our executive leaders, which is about 15 people in our exec with the chief execs direct reports, have all got reverse mentoring, mentee relationships. We have, we're just rolling out some facilitated workshops 
with the leadership team so that they can build their confidence in talking about why diversity and inclusion is important to them and why it's important to the business. So those two things are really crucial in terms of being authentic leaders in the diversity and inclusion space and also owning the priority that the business priority, strategic priority that is diversity and inclusion. We've also got a workshop uh, around leading race matters with confidence. So getting our white leaders to talk about race and what it means for them, how it's influenced their career, how it's influ influenced their decision-making. And then we're gonna be looking at the secondments, the culture, building on our um, employee networks and, and providing really direct opportunities for the employee networks to feed into um, business solving opportunities for us as, as, as an organization. So it, 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 we're set up for success. We're set up to, to do much better. So I'm clear that we've done some really good things. I think our challenge is inconsistency across the organization and a need to build the competence, the leadership competence. So that, as I said earlier, that ownership of what we're doing is much better. Um, when the murder of George Floyd occurred, we had a, a series of conversations around race, which were really effective. And our employee network also helped help and continue to hold regular sessions for people to, and we've seen a, a growth in their membership in, in terms of anyone can join any of the employee networks. So we've seen an uptake in, in that. And we've also seen that the exec leadership issue some really strong messages so we've got you know an environment that's ready but we've also unearthing when you create that environment that is a bit more open and receptive to addressing racist behavior or systemic racism you also then bubble up other things so you start to hear more of the things that you you kind of wish weren't happening in your environment does, does that make sense David but I think as I said we're facing into that much better. It makes absolute sense. And, and what is superb about that really in-depth description, thank you so much for that, is this is great learning for others who are tuning in today. Um, but a fantastic example of the fact that this is not a one silver bullet situation. And my team know me for repeating that sentence so much, but it is so true. And it's just brilliant that you are addressing it from so many different angles. Um, you know, for anyone who is tuning in, I, I was making prolific notes actually as you were speaking, but everything is based on the data. You know, it's such an old classic management speak, but um, you know, what is not measured cannot be managed. And that is so, so, so critically true. But the things that you pointed out in the headlines there, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic individuals less likely to be um, appointed, less likely to get promotion, less likely to um, keep promotion and also more likely to be dismissed. I mean, that is just unbelievable if ever there were key headlines to take away and why we should be doing more than absolutely that is that is it but uh, what I you know appreciate um you know very much indeed is your transparency about this what a remarkable example example to showcase and to be honest and transparent i think many organizations when when you talk specifically about um you know race and ethnicity which you know let's face it it's not always the most comfortable subject to be talking about want to be shying away and wait until they have something to talk about i.e let's wait until we've got a black person on the board and then we can say something no say something right 
now because no one is perfect and um you know it's great uh, you know what's great about speaking with you Lorraine is is that you are so persistent and resilient and and keep a foot on the gas and I think the best DNI practitioners really are you know my goodness it is you know it's not a walk in the park it takes constant 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 repetition and when once you've then communicated it you know communicate all over again but some really brilliant case studies and I commend you for um you know really just diving in with this and you know giving the warts and all approach whilst also um you know the fantastic things that are happening and um, you know in particular the the exec buy-in you know I truly don't believe that organizations can make the difference that they need to without that true exec buy-in and understanding and as you say you know that empowerment because, you know, there are many, many leaders, many, many, you know, white male leaders who want to do something but are fearful of being, um, you know, villainized or, or whatever for, for saying those wrong things. And so that holistic, multifaceted approach is, is really, really, really valuable. So thank you very much for sharing. Thank you. And before we wrap up today, I'd love to go into a, a quick lightning round, if we may. Uh, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to answer each of um, each of the next questions. And I'm probably going to start off with the most difficult one first. Um, and I think, you know, what I love about the lightning rounds is, um, you know, whomever is listening in, and often we have execs who are listening in to uh, young graduates that sometimes write in and say, hey, do you know what, just listening to that really gave me the strength and the courage to speak up. So yeah, I'm going to start off with the hardest question first. That is, what has been your secret to success? Oh, that's brilliant. Secret to my success, um, I think, is my grounding. So my foundations are really, really strong. I've got a fantastic family, great friends, great community. They keep me solid so I don't I don't believe my own hype <laughs> <laughs> they keep you in check they keep you in check around <laughs> absolutely keep me in check so and, and and I love that I love that you know I I am a you know as successful as I am I'm a working class girl made good and uh and you know th they remind me of that in in the most positive and helpful way so yeah keeping grounded is is is, is the secret I think Thank you. Great answer. And what does diversity, inclusion and belonging mean to you personally? Ah, oh, it, it, it means that um, it, it means that you're accepted for who you are. You see me, you, you appreciate me, you respect me and you you allow me to be me. And, and I think when you do that, I'm at my absolute best. And, that, and that's surely what you would want for, for everybody that you've got working in your organisation. Absolutely. And what about any heroes, sheroes, people that have inspired you throughout your um, life? I've talked about my parents. I think without them, you know, they are the root. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess, I guess, you know, I grew up as an activist and I think there are so many unsung, unsung people who have been, you know, for who, who, on whose shoulders I stand. And I, I think of um, a guy called Stafford Scott, who has done a lot of work around police discrimination. I think of Anita Kerpal, who um, is, uh, is, uh, is doing some fantastic work on, uh, she's an occupational psychologist now, but we cut our teeth on working on uh, a women's refuge and working in anti-racist struggles. 
So I think of people who have helped me and uh, to grow as a, as an individual that I've I've worked with who would who would be unknown that you know have held the held the the flame handed on the baton to future generations. Yeah, those would be my my heroes and sheroes. Thank you. And finally, if you could go back in time and give the young Lorraine advice, perhaps it's the time when your friend's parents had said, sorry, um, you can't come in here. What advice would you give your younger self or indeed someone who is in a similar situation and who is considering what to do next? I think the, the advice I've, I've always thought I would give myself is to do your best, always do your best, be yourself and do your best. Those things can never waver. And if, if you do that, you will be, you will be okay. <laughs> you will be okay. Thank you so much, Lorraine. It's been an absolute joy having you on the show uh, today. Thank um, you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you inviting me to do the podcast. Oh. Bless you. Thanks so much, Lauren. I could have gone on for, for a much longer time and I already have a, a, another thought to ask of you after the podcast is finished. But very quickly, <laughs> very quickly, I will give a short summary because I know you're very busy and probably have a million and one things to do. Um, but some of the things that really stood out to me, first and foremost, you know, fantastic whistle stop piece on black history and I really hope that this podcast has encouraged many others to see the value in understanding and learning more about black history whether you are black whether you are from an ethnic minority background whether you're white there's so much richness there that we can learn from and that can be explored we've only just touched the surface today but also remembering that when we talk about race and ethnicity and the fact that this is systemic and, and it's been going for, for many 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 years within um business and wider society to look at this as Lorraine said as a seamless continuum a seamless continuum that we need to keep our foot on the gas on keep the momentum up um, you know there are many as Lorraine says unsung heroes and you know would she have got to where she is today by um, you know being granted opportunities if you are a leader um, you know and you are felt you've got to where you are by standing on the shoulders of many other giants do consider sending that lift back down because this is a holistic um, you know this is a holistic piece diversity inclusion belonging humanity equality um, we cannot get to where we need to be without every person being involved each and every one of us as a leader and I do believe anyone can be a leader can be a beacon for change like Lorraine is and will continue to be so. And finally, I will just say uh, what really resonated with me was you know, some of the personal stories, you know, not to let your past define your future. If you can seek that true confidence deep inside you and really take that on into whatever you may go off and do, sometimes the opinions of certain people do not matter. Actually, um, you know, your past, it doesn't dictate what happens moving forward. So be a glass half full person like the lovely Lorraine here. Do join us again uh, next week for the next episode of Diverse and Inclusive Leaders. And if you missed anything at all today, as well don't worry because we're going to be capturing all of the key learning points into the show notes at the end of today's show uh, with Lorraine we'll put a note in there so you can connect with her on LinkedIn um, as well if you would like visit us at www.dialglobal.org forward slash podcast and we look forward to seeing you again very soon